Good morning, everybody. Great to be back with the Chapel family again. A couple people asked me this morning if I was going to keep going on the Beatitudes, and then I realized that I had accidentally committed myself to a new series. Uh, so maybe next time, as, as Pastor Nathan mentioned, uh, during the Lenten season, we're going to be reflecting on uh, passages from the gospel. So this morning, uh, our passage is Matthew chapter 4. It is on page 961 in the Pew Bible, uh, if you want to turn there. Our subject this morning is temptation, Jesus and ours. Let me give you a definition of temptation. Temptation is anything that for any reason exerts a force or influence to seduce and draw a person's mind and heart away from the obedience which God requires to any kind of sin. So drawing us away from what God requires to any kind of sin. So I just want to make this point as we begin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is the enticement to sin. If someone says something hurtful to you and you want to respond in kind, the simple presence of that thought in your head is not sin. It is temptation. Toying with that thought, nurturing it, growing it, watering it, cherishing it, and then acting on it, yielding to it, that is sin, but the thought itself is temptation. And the life of faith is not about reaching a spiritual plane where tempting thoughts never show up in your head. People seem to have that idea of sanctification. If I do it long enough, I will never be tempted again by X, Y, or Z. Rather, the life of faith is about learning how to respond in self-denial and faithful obedience when we are tempted. And the surest proof that there is difference between temptation and sin is this, Jesus himself was tempted. That's the passage we're going to look at this morning in Matthew 4. And let me just give you the big idea up front. Jesus has successfully overcome temptation for us so that we can successfully overcome temptation in him. So let me read from God's word this morning, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you 
if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. So three points this morning, the beginning of temptation, the nature of temptation, that's where we'll consider the three individual temptations here, and then the end of temptation, the beginning, the nature, and the end. So just note the very precise language with which our text begins. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus was led up by the Spirit. What is about to happen has been ordered by God. God is in control and working by the agency of the Spirit. But the tempting does not come from God. There is another agent. There is another agency also involved. One person says it this way, temptation is God-ordained, but not God-inflicted. Maybe another way to say it is something like this. Jesus is tested by God, but not tempted by God. And he is tempted, sorry, let me say that one more time. Jesus is tested by God, but not tempted by God. And he is tempted by Satan, but not tested by Satan. Let me talk about these words for a second. Testing is when the Lord gives us the opportunity to show faithfulness and fidelity in keeping covenant with him. Testing is intended to reveal the depth of our commitment and make us stronger. James 1 says that testing produces steadfastness. So it, testing is a positive thing, even when we don't like it. Temptation is about making someone stumble and fall. And so James says, don't say we are tempted by God. God only sends good gifts. He does not entice us to sin. And so Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. From God, it is an opportunity for Jesus to trust in his sonship and in the Father's care. From the adversary, it is an opportunity to get Jesus to twist his sonship, to exalt himself, to protect himself, to promote himself. I think the basic truth in verse 1 uh, is this. Being led by God's Spirit and being severely tempted are not contradictory. They're not incompatible. Being led by God's Spirit does not mean nothing difficult will ever happen to you. You know, sometimes people make this bargain from God. I will go to church every Sunday and not do the top four bad things the Bible says, and then you'll never put me in a difficult situation. Uh, the Bible never makes a promise like that. The Bible never says you won't face sufferings, trials, and hardships. 
So being led by God's Spirit does not mean you will never have a season of severe temptation. Similarly, being in a season or place of severe temptation does not mean that God's Spirit has abandoned you or left you. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Yes, there is an adversary who would love to disqualify us from fruitful service in God's kingdom. But above that is always the overarching presence of a loving God who is at work in our successes and in our failures to refine us, to shape us, and to make us more like Christ. Uh, so that's simply the beginning of temptation. It is God-ordained, but not God-inflicted. What about the nature of temptation? Well, temptation invites us to take something that is good and use it in the wrong way. It starts with something good. It starts with something desirable. You cannot be tempted by something you hate, like sardines. If you were to say to me, you have the option to obey God, or you could eat sardines. There is nothing tempting about that for me. You can only be tempted by something which has goodness, and sardines do not have goodness. This is a debate we could carry on later. But the temptation is to take a good thing, but take it in a way that God has not offered it to you. So for example, Food and drink are good, sex is good, money is good, but in temptation, I am enticed to gluttony or drunkenness or sex outside of a covenantal commitment or covetousness, theft, and greed. Temptation always perverts or distorts something that is good. And in our passage, Satan is offering to Jesus good things, and the issue is whether Jesus will take them in the wrong way. So we're going to look briefly at each of these three temptations, but in a sense, there is just one temptation happening three times. And it can be summed up in the words repeated by the adversary, if you are the Son of God. Now, when you're reading Matthew's Gospel, if you were to look back at the end of chapter 3, it should be obvious there is no if. Because what just happened at the end of chapter 3 is that the heavens parted, the Father, uh, His voice came out from heaven and declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And what the adversary is saying is, yeah, 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 but that's just words. Uh, prove it, Jesus. Let's have some evidence. Show me the money. The Father's word is not enough. And that's the temptation, the demand to prove it. There is a way of seeking certainty that leads us away from the Lord. There is a way of knowing something in the wrong way that is not obedience, but disobedience. To demand to see something. I think we do this 
all the time, right? God has cleansed us, God has forgiven us, God has filled our lives with many good things, and yet we see, but God, if we say, but God, if you really loved me, you would do X. You would fix this situation over here, or you would give me that, or you, you would do this thing over here. The Father's word is not enough for us. We're always demanding proof of some kind. So let's look at these three temptations. Temptation number one, Jesus is faint and weary with hunger after a 40-day season of fasting. Weakness is always an opportune time for temptation. Uh, maybe you remember what Jesus said to the disciples when he asked them to pray that night in Gethsemane, Matthew chapter 26, he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And so the adversary comes to Jesus in his weakness, and he says, prove that you are God's son, Jesus. You don't have to be hungry. You don't have to be someone who waits on God and depends on God for provision. You are a one-man bread-making factory. You can make bread without plowing or planting or harvesting or baking. Command the stones to become bread and take what you need. Hunger is the same temptation that Israel faced in the wilderness. They grumbled about their life in Egypt. Remember in Exodus 16, they said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. In the wilderness, Israel wondered whether God had abandoned them. They wondered if they were really sons because they were hungry. But it was a test. And Moses says that in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, just remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God, in the wilderness, through hunger, was revealing what was in the hearts of his people. And he wanted them to know that at the end of the day, it is not bread, it is God and his word that sustains our lives. And so this is the word then that Jesus takes and quotes to the adversary because our real life comes not from food. It comes from God. It comes from his word. And Jesus is showing that he will be someone who hangs on the word of God, that that is the real bread by which he is sustained and lives. That's temptation number one. Then, Satan takes Jesus on a field trip. They go to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point. And again, Satan says to Jesus, 
prove that you are God's son, show that he will protect you. And he quotes from the Psalms, the angels will bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Come on, Jesus, show that God can be trusted. Jump, no parachute, no stuntman's inflatable pillow uh, at the bottom of the building waiting for you. Let the angels swoop you up and show the validity of God's promise to take care of you. Uh, again, Israel in the wilderness also wanted proof that God would care for them. In Exodus 17, they tested God at Massa. They demanded water in the wilderness to drink. But actually, the story isn't really that uh, ultimately about water. Here's what they said in Exodus 17. Uh, they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? They wanted God to do something to prove his presence and care. God, prove that you are someone who is taking care of us. Prove that you are with us. Uh, again, God spared them from the plagues. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He led them by a cloud and a pillar of fire through the wilderness. He gave them manna from heaven to eat, and yet they demanded that God provide them with proof of his faithful presence. Uh, their hearts, just like ours, were forgetful, were doubting, were full of mistrust. And Moses reflected on this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. He said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As you tested him at Massa, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And again, this is uh, the section that Jesus quotes to the, to the adversary. Jesus knows our job is not to test God. Our job is to obey God. Our job is to trustingly and lovingly keep his commandments. God does not exist to obey us. We exist to obey him. And so Jesus says, uh, you shall not test the Lord your God. Uh, and then finally, the third temptation, Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and says, this can be yours if you just worship me. Give me your homage, and I will give you everything. There was a constant temptation for God's people Israel, both in the wilderness and in the promised land, uh, to short-circuit God's road to blessing, uh, his, God's road to experiencing fullness of life by obediently being faithful to God's commandments, and to get what they wanted by worshiping other gods. Here is what Satan is saying to Jesus. Do I have a deal for you? All the kingdoms of the world, and I can give them to you without the cross. Do you know that crazy plan that your father has cooked up? The one with all the suffering and humiliation and death? I can give it to you the easy way. All the world, if you worship me. 
The devil's strategy is to get Jesus to grasp at the crown without bearing the cross. Uh, There's something here about the heart of temptation. It is always grasping at the crown without bearing the cross. Uh, This is why, by the way, in Matthew 16, when Jesus declares that he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, and, and then remember Peter rebukes him. He says, don't say that. Far be it from you that this should ever happen to you. Jesus responds to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, right? Uh, why, why does Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? Well, it's because someone has already said this thing to Jesus. Uh, and it is Satan here in Matthew chapter 4. You can have what you want without the cross. And this temptation brings the same strong reaction, be gone, uh, which I don't think anybody says be gone today. I think we just say scram, get lost, get out of here. And then another quote from Deuteronomy 6, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. God alone is worthy of worship. And don't forget what happens at the end of Matthew's gospel Jesus appears to his disciples on a mountain. He says, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. Right? That's important. Did you hear the tense of the, the verb, the form of the verb? They have been given to me. So what the devil tempted Jesus to take and to grasp has been granted to him by God after he obediently went to the cross. He has worshiped and served God alone. And by doing so, he has received everything promised to him by the Father. Uh, There's a lot that we could say here, uh, and I don't have time to say it all, but let's not forget this. Temptation makes promises, but faithful obedience delivers them. So temptation will always be a lie that promises sin will bring joy and happiness and life when those things really come when we submit ourselves to God and live in dependence and obedience to Him. So the end of temptation, verse 11, we read uh, that the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I want to focus on this. The devil left him. Why Why did the devil leave him? Well, I think the obvious reason is because he did not give in. He successfully resisted temptation. He would not be drawn away from trusting and worshiping the Father to rely on himself. Uh, Jesus here is successfully living out the relationship that was supposed to characterize Israel when they were in the wilderness. So when you think about the three temptations, uh, Jesus is living in dependence upon the Father for provision. He is trusting in the presence uh, of the Father without the need for demonstrations. He is accepting God's sovereign plan and not worshiping false gods. Those are the very things that God had called Israel to do and to be in the wilderness. Uh, Matthew 
was written for one of the earliest Jewish Christian communities in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus has been uh, repeatedly reenacting Israel's history. He's come out of Egypt in chapter 2. He passed through the waters in chapter 3. He goes into the wilderness here in chapter 4 for the 40-day testing, reminiscent of Israel's 40-year journey. Jesus is repeatedly quoting from Deuteronomy, highlighting that he's facing the same temptations that Israel did, but he's doing it in a way that makes the devil flee. So what I think would have been clear here to Matthew's Jewish readers is that Jesus is doing something for his people Israel. He is filling full their history, far from replacing or erasing Israel. Uh, Jesus takes his identity from Israel, and he is standing for and with Israel in overcoming these temptations. I think uh, these first readers definitely would have seen. Jesus is gaining a victory over temptation that he intends to share with his people. Uh, and that's the point here. His obedience in temptation is part of his fulfilling all righteousness for us, the righteousness that ultimately becomes ours. Uh, and so here's something we need to navigate in this passage. In one sense, Jesus' temptations are uniquely his. He alone is the messianic son, the one who could have turned stones into bread or taken a swan dive off the temple and be assured of safety, but instead lived as the faithful embodiment of trust and obedience. And while it's not Matthew's main focus, he alone is the one whose successful obedience in temptation can undo the consequences of the sin that came through Adam and Eve's failure in temptation. So Jesus in temptation is a one of a kind, but at the same time, Jesus' temptations are universal. We are not the messianic son, uh, but we are tempted in all the ways that Jesus was in the wilderness to exercise power for personal ends rather than the Father's purpose, to walk by faith and not by sight, to grab for the crown while wanting to avoid the cross. And Jesus has accomplished righteousness for us, and he has also left us a model for living righteously. Remember James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Doesn't that sound like what's going on in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11? Uh, James doesn't say only Jesus can resist temptation because he's the sinless son of God, so don't even try, because that wouldn't be believing in the righteousness of Christ. Rather, he says, you can resist in him. 1 Corinthians 10, temptation is common to man, but there is a way of escape. It is not beyond our ability to fight temptation as we depend on Christ and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the issue in temptation is not, do I get it and do I win or do I fail? The issue in temptation is, do I resist or do I toy with it and nurture it and cherish it? Jesus said, be gone, Satan. 
Joseph ran out of the room with Potiphar's wife. David stood on a rooftop and leered at Bathsheba. Uh, if you put yourself in temptation's grip, you cannot be surprised when sin has you in its grasp. But where you resist temptation, God comes by the power of his spirit uh, and gives us aid. Jesus didn't take the easy way out. He didn't believe the lie that there is a shortcut uh, to blessing. Every time Jesus said no to temptation, he was saying yes to the cross. And every time we say no to temptation, we are saying yes to bearing the cross. The only way to overcome temptation is by learning to die to self in serving God. Jesus relinquished power and self-interest to be the Messiah who saves us from our sins. Following him does not mean living on a spiritual plane where we never have to experience the things that he experienced. It means that we also relinquish power and self-interest and live a life of dependence on God. And when we fail, because we will fail, what should we do? We should let temptation reveal how weak we are, how easily we can be seduced, how susceptible we are to live for ourselves, depend on what we can see, resist God's sovereign plans. And then we should run back to God who says, I have made a way for you in my son. My son who has resisted temptation, my son who has fulfilled all righteousness, my son in whom you are still beloved even in your worst failures. And that is when we rediscover his love in a way that makes sin and temptation lose their attractiveness. And to circle back to the very beginning, our hearts are not measured by whether we are tempted or not. They are measured by how they have been trained by grace to mirror Christ's own response to temptation and to say, be gone, Satan, and, let, uh, and worship the Lord your God uh, alone. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you uh, in this Lenten season uh, that God wants to feed you with grace to fight temptation rather than to give into it. Uh, he secured the ultimate victory for you over sin and temptation. Uh, and he leads you by his spirit who lives inside of you uh, to guard you and to strengthen you in it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this rich passage. We thank you for uh, Jesus' success in temptation, uh, which is not only our confidence of righteousness, uh, but is also our hope in the midst of our own temptations. Help us to seek our power and our strength in him. Help us uh, to live the life that he lived in dependence upon you. And we pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.